The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Prosthesis Statement Edition. It's Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. On today's show, Vice is the Dick Cheney biopic from writer-director Adam McKay. The man behind The Big Short, it's also part of our pre-Oscar mop-up series. And then Netflix's teen comedy, Sex Education, tells the story of a sex therapist mom and her nerdy pubescent son. And finally, in the age of streaming, some hits are hidden hits. They achieve massive download numbers. We discuss whether that's meaningful uh, at all with Slate's own TV critic, Willa Paskin. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is, of course, deputy editor of the LA Times. Deputy managing editor, Steve. Oh, deputy managing John editor. Fuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> he scaled no- that slope and then he slid back down again. <laughs> Otherwise known around the office as Vice. <laughs> oh, Fair dear. enough. Okay. And, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Uh, let's dig right in. He started out as an Ivy League, uh, no good Nick, uh, became Donald Rumsfeld's lackey in the Nixon and Ford years. He was kind of a Mr. Lady Macbeth, a coattail writer, and TBH kind of a cipher. But he turned out to be a mean bureaucratic infighter, and in some people's estimations, I hate to use such extreme language, but maybe I don't, an American Eichmann, a banality who was in the last analysis quite evil. Undeniably, Dick Cheney's fingerprints are all over our world, particularly when it comes to permanent war, climate change, and inequality. Vice is the new movie from Adam McKay of The Big Short. It tells the story of squat, ugly men in squat, ugly buildings administering to a haphazard and in some respects, uh, quite poisonous American empire. At the center of the movie in a courageous weight gain performance is Christian Bale, Uh, He is covered in latex. It looks like a brisket is stuck in one of his many chins. The movie takes us through not only Dick Cheney's life, but a kind of god-awful liturgy of the past 30 years, especially the manipulation of PTSD from 9-11 that gave us the Iraq War on totally false pretenses. Why don't we listen to a clip? I want you to be my VP. You're the solution to my problem. Uh, uh, The vice presidency is mostly a... uh symbolic job right right i can see how that wouldn't be uh enticing to you however the vice presidency is also defined by the president if we were to come to a uh, different understanding uh-huh go on i'm listening I sense that uh, you're a kinetic leader. You make decisions based on instinct. I am. Mm. People always said that. Yeah, yeah. Very different. Very different from uh, from your father in that regard. Now, maybe I can uh, handle some of the more mundane jobs, overseeing uh, bureaucracy, managing military uh, energy, uh, foreign policy that sounds good all right dana well let me let me start with you i mean that obviously is a key moment in the movie and in the american history where bush essentially hands much of the responsibility of being president over to his vice president um this movie has got this kind of history of the present style of presentation i mean it 
it kind of exploits American amnesia to tell, as the Big Short does, to tell these stories of uh, these kind of horrible crimes that we forgive, forgave or forgot too quickly. It's kind of a Vox explainer crossed with the traditional biopic, so some people don't really respond to it as a movie movie. Uh, what, how about you? Well, I mean, there's an important strain in there with with the Vox explainer and the traditional biopic that you don't at all hear in that scene, which is between Bale as Cheney and Sam Rockwell as George W. Bush. That is a very typical biopic scene, right? It compresses a whole bunch of uh, decisions and, and moments that we can't know about into this this one uh, sit down dinner where essentially Cheney wangles his way into this super vice presidency where he'll absorb much of the executive power for himself. There's also this antic element in the movie's direction that we might remember from the big short, right? There's constant cutaways to fake news clips uh, with Naomi Watts as a as an as an anchor, bits of pop cultural detritus that are cut to. There's kind of an impressionistic montage element to the movie that we should also talk about at some point, because it's to me still a mystery why that functioned so well in the big short and does not function at all in Vice. Um, I'm really curious to hear both of you guys on this movie. I saw it when it came out and wrote on it about a month ago. And uh, it was one of the big disappointments of 2018 for me. I was really excited that Adam McKay was taking on the George W. Bush administration. I thought the big short was really funny and smart and doing something new with the form. And uh, and this movie just feels, even though it's trying to use some of the same techniques to displace us or be subversive, it just feels so overfamiliar and so hectoring. This movie oh boy, thought I was so dumb thinks Americans are so dumb and was itself so dumb about (laughs) Cheney's history and what motivated him and the combination of being dumb while thinking it is smarter than me and everyone else really got under my skin. I have not had so much fun disliking a movie in such a long time. (laughs) Oh, God, what an execrable production. And, And really a painful one because... I agree, Dana. I had the exact same question. Like, why did this work so well for The Big Short and why does it work so poorly here? It almost made me want to go back and watch The Big Short to uh, sort of doubting my admiration for it. Like, was it just as smug and dumb about finance as it seems to have been about political motivation? And I just didn't know because I'm dumber about finance. I'm not sure. But You know, the heartbreak here is that Adam McKay is so incredibly talented, I think, and that the two performances at the center of the film um, by Christian Bale as Dick Cheney and by Amy Adams as Lynn are extraordinary. I mean, when I heard that Christian Bale was cast as Dick Cheney, I thought, what? He doesn't look like him at all. He's the wrong age. His face is the wrong shape. He like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Christian Bale, great actor, but my God. Um, And he completely embodies Dick Cheney and brings this kind of cipher of a character to physical life on screen. But the script does not give him anything to actually deliver. The question of why Dick Cheney did the things he did, how it was that he came to absorb this power for himself uh, and then use it in the way that he did, the movie is deeply unserious in its examination of political power, why people might want it, Um, And how it is that people come to do such damaging things Mm -hmm. to the world. And to really understand that, you have to, I think, have some empathy or sympathy for the people who are the perpetrators of actions that turn out to be very, very bad, or at least empathy for what their own understanding of what they're doing is. And this movie's literal understanding of power seems to be Dick Cheney attaching himself to Donald Rumsfeld 
because he seems like a, a swinging asshole uh, when he first arrives as a congressional page, I think, or intern or something. Um, and then literally early Rumsfeld and early Cheney in the Nixon administration just getting behind a door and being like, power, we sure want it, <laughs> and rubbing their hands mm. together. Like, that's not how the world works. Like, fuck you. I, I, like, this is an extremely important question. And to be so glib and sneering to posit with this extraordinary performance that those tragedies happen because – I don't know, because of this incredibly flimsy idea of how it is that bad people come to do bad things. Mm-hmm. I, I just felt so insulted by the whole production. Here's where I'm going to stake my thesis about this movie. Um, I, I, I didn't like it substantially better than either one of you, but I think I may maybe see where it went wrong, where the big short went right. The, the thing that struck me about the big short is that it's an ensemble movie in some respects. Um, There's no single protagonist or hero at the center of it. And what the movie really shows, I mean, there's this kind of little, you know, disparate, you know, team of weirdos who see through the bullshit of the real estate bubble. But what the movie is really about is how the real estate bubble penetrated every cranny of the American economy. And the movie did a brilliant job of showing you how from the very, very top of the C-suite, you know, the bullshitters making the biggest, you know, 10 figure paychecks off of the real estate bubble all the way down to like just the brokers in Florida, you know, your Joe Schmo brokers in Florida who knew they were peddling bullshit houses at bullshit prices. Um, and secondly, you know, the, the the explainer was sort of necessary. Like, well, how? Like, what is a credit default swap? How did the global economy, you know, feed us with a glut of money that we could then, you know, pump into real estate? I thought those explainers were maybe slightly facile, but most people begin with a baseline knowledge of zero. And so the, even the facile explainer is, is um, is welcome. There was an opportunity here, I think, because what Dick Cheney was in his essence was an oil executive. I mean, he was a bureaucratic infighter who worked his way to the top of two adjacent bureaucracies, the American government, you know, the Pentagon and the White House um, and uh, and the American oil industry. And he saw those two as inextricably linked, which is what led him to invade the Iraq war. And the relationship between American innocence and fossil fuels has as its hinge people like Dick Cheney, right? Our ability to lumber forth in the world, destroying everything outside of our own borders and many things within them is predicated on cheap fucking fossil fuels, right? The ultimate strategic asset. And to preserve American innocence and to preserve our sense of like unlimited growth and unlimited personal potential and our ability to think completely ahistorically and have this kind of amnesia requires that there are these bureaucratic evildoers who are out there securing this oil geostrategically by any fucking means necessary. And so there is this thematic link between this guy who kind of wants to have this innocent relationship with his wife who needs instructions over the phone how to make a, you know, a box mac and cheese and his daughter who he's depicted in the movie openly as like loving um, at all political costs. And this guy who does these things in order to keep that bubble of American innocence intact, but the movie never got that idea exactly into its head. And so it just, it just kind of gives you this greatest slash worst hits of the last 20, 25 years um, and kind of just doesn't add up to a whole bunch. The movie does not seem curious or it seems to, it's kind of seems like a student that, you know, was really like focused on making the poster board for its assignment and like, you know, putting, putting a lot of, 
attention to the presenta- presentation and very little into the underlying idea, like, and, mm-hmm. and kind of coming up at the end being like, oh, my God, I hired this great guy and I got this great makeup person. And, oh, my gosh, we've got jump cuts. And we we turned Naomi Watts into a Fox News anchor for some ungut, you know, some reason unclear. Uh, and yet we do not we like we we don't have the core thing like mm-hmm. the dog ate the homework right. at the core of this movie there is no animating idea <laughs> right, about, right. Uh, about Dick Cheney and you know then the other thing that just sort of adds insult to injury which like fair enough it's it's a really hard question like I, I get that maybe you would do all this research and work and you wouldn't come up with a central animating idea about the mystery that moves at the heart of darkness but then maybe that should be the subject of the movie like the movie just well, kind of right. smugly pretends to have an answer does not and then has this extraordinary kicker. I mean, there's a few notes at this throughout, like, oh, Americans were so busy, the economy is so screwed, they're working so hard, they don't have time to pay attention to the news and really understand things the way I'm going to show you with my razzle-dazzle movie. And then there's this um, incredibly condescending sexist coda after the credit sequence in which one of the focus groups that we've seen throughout as as, um, kind of helping uh, guide the messaging for the second Gulf War you know, starts talking about politics today and two men start slugging away at Trump versus Hillary. And then the, uh, one of the women in the room is like, I can't wait for the next Fast and Furious movie. And it's just like, fuck you. Like, f- you right. think you're the... I, 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 right. ah! it's, no, it's, inc- <laughs> it's incredibly insulting. I agree. Yeah, I guess I would say see it for Bale's performance, but there is so much of a sense, as Julia says, that, you know, he's all dressed up in latex prostheses with nowhere to go. Before we leave this this movie behind to its possible Oscar chances, I just want to know what you guys thought of the the sort of playful elements in the structure. For example, we haven't talked about this frame story where Jesse Plemons plays this fourth wall breaking character who you don't discover what his relationship to the whole story is until the end. Did that stuff all just seem like bells and whistles to you? Did or did it at least help take you out of the the drab bad biopicness of it all? It's not what you got; it's how you use it, right? Like all of the I'm you know I love the surprise of the storytelling, the non-obvious of the storytelling, the sense that this is a story that in order to tell it, sometimes you need to turn Washington into a game board. And sometimes people need to start talking about penises and wigs. And sometimes they need to be speaking in Shakespearean narrative. Like, again, if you actually had something to say, trying to say it in such an inventive way could be really effective. But there's mm-hmm. just an emptiness at the core here that makes those gimmicks fail. I, I, I agree, but I'll take it one step further. That should have been, it was almost the subject of the movie, it was the emptiness at the core. It should have been more that. Uh, I didn't like the bells and whistles. I'll, t- I'll give you an example of a scene that I loved. Steve Carell is Rumsfeld. Cheney is, at that point, his brand new lackey. Uh, and Cheney's, it's just coming home to a, Young, still pretty young Dick Cheney, that Rumsfeld is a bureaucratic infighter uh, and something of a nihilist. And he just asks him with the last ounce of credulity that Dick Cheney, I guess, ever had in his life. He said, well, what, like, why are you doing this? Like, what do we believe? I, to what purpose are you doing this? And Carell just looks at him for a second and then bursts out into laughter, like crows are flying, like, you know, like a flock of crows you know, cackling crows is flying out of his mouth, just the most scabrous laughter you've ever heard. And you learn more in that moment. And he he he, he, sl- he walks into his office and slams the door and, and a young Dick Cheney is just looking at that slam door and the laughter continues behind the door. And you learn more in that moment than all of these bells and whistles asides and little Vox explainers put together. 
All right, the movie's vice. Wait, 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 wait a second. I hate to open up a can of worms at the very end, but that was one of the worst moments. Don't you agree, Julia? That was absolutely the worst moment. That's like no fucking way. These guys absolutely believe this whole fucking no neoconservative fucking way. No, 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 democracy no, no, no. building. That is totally wrong. That falsifies both the movie and history. It's clear that Rumsfeld oh, was a bureaucratic was... infighter. Th- these guys, they believed in they believed in close to nothing other than maintaining the American empire, which were which were acquired oil fields and that was why they went into iraq and and there's a kind of that special nihilism of just of self-engrossment of the bureaucratic fighter and an empire that stands for very little it seems to me that's what the movie's about and it doesn't falsify history and it's just funny to rumsfeld that he would be you think rumsfeld has a set of articulated you know beliefs that he follows to achieve what he i achieved? think that it I think that it may be true that Rumsfeld is more guided, was more guided by a quest for power than any particular ideology. But I think to present him as having been aware of that and finding it hilarious and nihilist at the time, like the, what is interesting about how people come to do terrible things is how they justify those things to themselves along the way. And the notion that Rumsfeld was just cackling to himself behind a door, being like, Mwah! Uh, it's all about the oil is such a fucking bullshit way to think about history and how it unfolds. I mean, you have to remember that these are people who came up through the Nixon years and stuck by him, not in, not only in spite of, but because of Watergate at the center of all of this is Nixon and his nihilism. I think it's just false to say that power doesn't in some way operate for its own sake and its own expansion. But didn't the entire neocon, quote unquote, intellectual conservative movement develop precisely in order to justify these kinds of choices? And wouldn't Rumsfeld at that moment have launched into some, you know, nonsense cant about about the need to preserve peace through war or some sort of neocon response? I just don't. I also don't believe that there would be nihilist cackling behind a door and that that's what the entire Bush administration was built on. It may feel like that to us, but. I don't think that that's I don't know. I find true. I find that nihilistic cackling. I don't know. I find it uh, totally credible. Anyway, we'll throw that one out wow. to the listeners. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, to be continued. You um, that you're like wronger about that than you were about Taylor Swift. <laughs> I mean, I, I what what can I tell you other than Nixon presented a challenge to young up and coming conservatives and the ones who stayed with the conservative movement post Watergate were almost by definition nihilists and nixon himself there's a ton a ton of books written about how nixon was simply about you know the engrossment of power to himself which is a form of nihilism anyway the movie is vice julia turner is wrong and uh check it out and uh come to our uh, twitter feed and agree with me all right moving on all right before we go any further dana you've got some uh, business i'm sure what uh, what do you got All we have, Steve, is to tell our listeners that today in Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about sex education, not the show, but our own experiences with sex education and our own embarrassing memories of being coached on the facts of life as adolescents. To hear embarrassing segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you should sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support our show. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing our show and your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, of course, you get extended ad-free versions of them all and many other wonderful benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus. 
Oh, Dana, one more piece of business really quickly. Uh, actually, two very quick pieces of business super quickly. One is that I may have dropped the ball on some of the Hudson Valley um, emails that I get asking for my Hudson Valley recs. Uh, had a personal matter to attend to. I think some of them fell through the cracks. Uh, it's all good on my end. I'd love to hear from you. Please do email me. I've got a list of things that I love doing in the Hudson Valley. I love pushing them on people. And then all you have to do is report back once you've uh, once you've explored some of them. And then secondly, I know that Yates is not a Northern Irish writer. I know that he is not part of the UK. I understand that he's an Irish writer. I responded a little too reflexively to um, something June Thomas said, indicating that I didn't know that um, Yeats was um, <laughs> just an, an Irish writer through and through. Um, uh, so I um, just want to issue that correction. All right, back to the show. Sex Education is a new Netflixer. It's a British import comedy. It stars Gillian Anderson, she of the perfectly, in this iteration, perfectly sculpted hair, jawline, and English accent. She's a super elegant sex therapist. Uh, Asa Butterfield plays her nerdy son, Otis. Otis teams up with Maeve, the school's bad girl social outcast, who's semi-secretly in possession of impeccable grammar and business savvy. They begin giving advice to their fellow teens in exchange for pound sterling dosh for uh, cash money. Let's listen to a clip. How old are you, Dan? How old am I? Uh, I'm 32. Are you having some kind of preemptive midlife crisis? Otis. Mum, you rides a motorbike. I'll take you for a ride in it sometime. You like? <laughs> no, thanks. Do you have an Oedipal complex? As in, you mean like, do I want to have sex with my mum? Mm. Uh, not really. It's not really my thing, that. Just ignore him. He's teasing you. Otis, it's perfectly normal for a younger man to be sexually attracted to a mature woman. In fact, when you stigmatise his choice, then you feed into an unhealthy narrative on masculinity in middle age. That's why I say you should never date a shrinker. <laughs> Sex and relationship therapist, thank you very much. It's me. Yeah, I should probably uh, root off as well. Thanks for everything, Mum. Uh, Jean, Jean, definitely Jean. Julia, let's uh, start with you. Um, what'd you make of this? I loved this show. It's great. Um, here are some things I liked about it. It treats sexuality in a way that is actually very hard to find on TV or film as something that everybody does, and it's basically healthy but that is also sometimes confusing, and particularly when you are a teen and you're trying to figure it out, can feel overwhelming and embarrassing and confusing and strange. And it just looks in this very calm, non-judgmental way at all of those things and suggests that an ability to discuss them candidly might help everyone. Um, and then the performances are fun, the musical cues are fun. Gillian Anderson's clothes and hair uh, and performance are very strikingly pleasurable to spend time with. Um, I One thing I'm curious about with the show is that it seems to be set in the present. There are phones, there's it's texting, there are, you know, sexual revenge gifts, etc. But there is something that feels a bit out of time about it. And I, I'm curious whether you guys also felt that, like both the production design, the clothes they're wearing, the kid has a Joy Division poster up in his room. There's a way in which it seems to like simultaneously want to be set in England. 30 years ago and set now that I couldn't quite put my finger on or figure out why that was or what it was doing structurally. And I'm curious whether you agree or whether I just can't 
follow modern British production design somehow. Yeah, there is a strange timelessness and also a placelessness in a way, right, Julia? It doesn't quite feel like like England. The high school almost feels like, uh, which is the high school, which is called Moordale, almost feels like Riverdale High School from the Archie comics. And it has this kind of archetypal letter jacket uh, look of an American high school. The creator of the show, Lori Nunn, has talked about this and how she wanted to make a show that was somewhat indeterminate, that was picking up archetypes from, you know, American teen movies and comics, etc., but that was also English. I'm not exactly sure what is gained from putting it in that space, except that maybe it becomes more fairy tale like and less anchored to any one era or or genre. I didn't necessarily love that about the show because and this is my main critique of it, I would say, in, in addition to it being too long, it should be a half an hour like a comedy instead of 50 minutes. But I feel like there's a lack of, of context or anchoring somehow of all these these different stories. I kept forgetting that Gillian Anderson was even in it as a character because her stories so seldom intersect with the kids' stories, including her own sons. There's these cutaways to the world of Gillian Anderson, the sex therapist, and, for example, her flirtation with her Swedish handyman. But it feels like it's a completely different show being woven in. There was something about this show that felt like it was trying to push all the right Netflix buttons that Julia just mentioned and, you know, be sex positive, which I agree it is, and have fun pop cues, which it does. But it didn't feel like a coherent world to me. It felt like a, a contrivance for TV. Mm. I, I kind of agree with you. I, I mean, it's, first of all, it has all of the ingredients I most love, English, English accents, verdant countryside, and Gillian Anderson. And um, and yet somehow the sum, there's not this gal, galvanic summing up of all of these parts into something that could sweep me away. Um, on the surface, it has a super mean-spirited humor. So the kids are are really undercutting each other in ways that seem socially cruel. Um, uh, and, and then it does this thing that used to be not so rote, but may, maybe has become a little rote, which is that beneath all of these kind of archetypal roles they're playing, you know, the, the kind of cruel kid bullying Jack or the, you know, hot girl or whatever, there's this kind of antitype. So there's the type on the surface beneath which this antitype, and that's supposed to automatically humanize them and make them interesting. That struck me as a little rote, which was too bad. I mean, so the bully turns out to be the principal's son, turns out to have uh, a sexual problem um, uh, that humanizes him and that makes him uh, available for further humanizing at the hands of the um, son, uh, you know, the uh, sort of super antisocial um, cool girl. Uh, who I think interestingly lives in a uh, British equivalent of, an, of what looks like an American trailer park. Uh, her family's been tossed in jail, we're led to believe, uh, really on her own. Turns out to have really, really, really good persnickety grammar, which I kind of loved that, um, but also a kind of wicked business sense. Um, that's good. It's all promising. I mean, I'm I'm two hours in. I, I'm almost certainly going to continue watching it, in part because it supposedly is being downloaded, as we'll talk about in our next se- segment, by tens of millions of people. And I'm curious why they're flocked i'm i'm like i'm wanting so badly to flock to it along with that um wave of people who are who are apparently downloading it but i just not quite i'm not quite there yet and i'm i'm hoping the looser more galvanic thing happens um and and it it just feels a little bit less uh manufactured in all of its effects can i make can i make a potential defense of the fairy tale quality which is that the idea of a world where teens can talk candidly about sex in a way that is humanistic and frank and not, uh, you know, the, and, the, and that has the internet available but not as a poisonous force 
uh, spreading disinformation is a fairy tale. Like that's not how sex education works. I think it's not how young people come to talk and learn about sex. Maybe the way young people come to talk and learn and think about sex is changing or will change in response to other changes in our culture. But the notion that it feels a bit like a fable populated by archetypes and is sort of apart from the actual world did not bother me about it. Like I was not craving realism and I don't feel like realism is quite what it's going for. Um, I guess the I guess one question that it being sort of having a fable quality raises is how do you create stakes and follow that over time and and um, how are they both real enough characters that you want to follow their scrapes and travails and also operating in this strange alternate symbolic level. Um, I don't know. I just enjoyed it. I think I will keep watching it as well. It's interesting what you say about length. The episodes are long. Yeah, there's so many of those pop montages that it, to me, got a little bit uh, cloying and overly padded. But then again, I say that about practically every show on TV. I mean, this show really has everything going for it. It just didn't really feel like a surprise or anything um, really exciting to me. I, I can completely understand why it's been a much downloaded show, because it seems like it would appeal to teenagers and to older viewers as well, and, and just has a lot of charm and a real people-pleasing kind of quality, but uh, I just didn't feel like there was that much there. Dana, I was trying to figure out as I watched it whether the quote-unquote gay and black best friend, unquote, was a part of what was predictable and maybe even slightly condescending about it or was a lovely um, exception to it. Well, certainly the gay black best friend who's played by the the actor, and he has a Rwandan name that I'm sure I'll mispronounce, the actor Nkuti Gatwa, um, is is one of the better and more memorable characters in the show. It's a very uh, splashy performance. It reminded me a little bit of of Titus, the gay black best friend in The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, just in the sense that, you know, he gets the best lines, he gets the best costumes, and he seems to be having the most fun with his performance. The actor has talked in interviews about how he hesitated taking this role because he didn't want to be the stock gay black best friend who kind of fills in the uh, the subject positions that the the white male straight protagonist can't. Um, and I don't know how he gets around it. I mean, in part, he gets around it, I think, because the character is just better written than that. The character has real arcs, crushes of his own and struggles of his own and seems in a way to be almost vying for uh, the protagonist position with the somewhat bland main character played by Asa Butterfield. All right. Well, it's sex education and it's on Netflix and it's hugely popular. So I'm sure we have listeners who disagree with us. We're, we're kind of tepid on it, but uh, we are sticking with it. All right. Uh, come to our Twitter feed. Tell us what you think. Moving on. All right. For our next segment, we're joined by Slate's uh, TV critic, Willa Paskin. Willa, you wrote a really interesting piece for Slate about uh, the title of which is Secret Hits and TV Monoculture. Let's begin with the secret hits. You know, I mean, traditionally growing up, we had the Nielsen ratings. We knew roughly how many people were watching what at any given time. Now in the era of streaming, we don't we don't have that. What we have are self-reported numbers from these giant streaming services themselves themselves. And Netflix has um, announced some incredible numbers. I mean, it says that uh, you, uh, the show you, Y-O-U, has been watched by 40 million member households in the four weeks since uh, they imported it from Lifetime. Sex Education, we just talked about on track to be watched by 40 40 million uh, of their member households. That's households, not people. Um, Bird Box, they claim, I mean, it's astonishing numbers, 80 million. You, you, You exhibit some intelligent skepticism in the face of these numbers. Let's start with the numbers and your skepticism. 
Sure. Um, so I think these numbers are basically not real in any um, in some ways that are important to state at the top, which is, um, you know, so Netflix has one hundred and thirty nine million global subscribers um, and they have fifty nine million in America. So every number just to start, all of those numbers are for international amounts of households. So that already makes it like a false comparison with any Nielsen rating. Um, and then the other thing is that we just don't know how like what watching actually means. So Netflix said that those numbers meant that someone in the household had watched at least 70% of one episode. But obviously, that's a really big difference if, you know, 35 million people watched 70% of the first episode of You versus, um, you know, 40 million people actually watching the entire series. So I think the numbers are probably like much more in line with what we would expect for a very popular drama at this point. You know, I mean, maybe it's 10 million, maybe it's 5 million, maybe it's 12 million. I mean, I think when you, the what you can tell is that, I mean, this is sort of what was is more interesting to me and we'll get into is like, I think you can tell from the outside that like something was happening around you. Like if you're on social media or on Twitter, you could tell that there was some buzz about it. There was some feeling that everybody, quote, was watching it. Bird box too. Right. For a blip for like two days or whatever mm-hmm. a week. Yeah. But but there's no way but there's still it's sort of not actually I mean, they're trying to quantify it with these numbers. I think these numbers are hugely inflated. I'm sure that anyone who works at an act- a linear network or a you know, network that has ratings would say they were even more bogus than I think that they are. But I mean, I, it is, I say that and then at the same time, obviously, I was like, whoa, these numbers. Like, it's just the idea that they could get 40 million people, admittedly not just American audience, but 40 million people to sample a show. Like, even if mm-hmm. even if yeah. they got 20 million American households to sample a TV show, like, that's that doesn't happen very much anymore. I know. I mean, but this is the whole, this is what's so bizarre about it, right? Is that, is that the whole idea of streaming is that you can go further and further and further niche. You know, you can do boutique, gourmet, bespoke programming. Everyone has a TV show that reflects back to them their own sensibilities. You know, television broadcast TV and cable TV been going traditional TV's been going in the direction of smaller and smaller but more carefully or strategically monetized audiences for a long time the that's in part why these numbers are so shocking i mean streaming did not appear to carry with the the promise of ratings you know that recall the heyday of all in the family or mash okay so very early on um when netflix was first getting into streaming they sort of said like we have to become hbo before hbo can become us but it turns out that was really small fry and and for the last like year or two um as they've ramped up their original content and i mean it is crazy to think about the timeline of netflix like they didn't they weren't doing any of this like really recently, that they're not actually trying to be HBO at all. They're trying to be all of television. They're trying to be every network. They're trying to be all of cable. They're trying to be a closed ecosystem that you never, ever have to leave, not because necessarily everything is so great, but because there's just so many options you can find something else. And what this these numbers sort of indicate is that, I mean, this is very, this is how I would interpret them. This is very, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt, is that what these numbers, I think, indicate and are probably terrifying to um other networks, linear networks, and uh, is maybe how Netflix would want us to read this, is that like basically they have sort of are successfully doing that, have become all of television for young people, right? Like you and sex education, these shows are for teenagers. I mean, obviously I liked them and watched them and and I think they're sort of um, uh, 
sort of broadening beyond that as all sort of like hit cultural products do. But like starting with 13 Reasons Why, Netflix seems like they have like a real lock on where teens actually watch scripted things. And that sort I think that that's some of what we're seeing is like this is changing for like Netflix is sort of successfully becoming all of television for those people who don't even know that Lifetime exists or that a show they would like is on Lifetime or where to find it and have no interest in doing so. Willa, this may be, you may have just stated the answer to this and I just didn't get that it was the answer to this, but the last paragraph of your piece begins with this, I think, somewhat mystifying statement. I continue to hate Netflix's refusal to share ratings information. I think it contributes to the myth of Netflix. Is that what you're just talking about now? What is the myth of Netflix? So and Net- and what would, how would it be different if they shared the information? So Netflix now, ex- it's like, it's just like, a, it, it is a tech company. So it's like, they don't have to make any profit. They don't have to tell you how many people are watching anything. They just have to say they have more subscribers and then like convince you that everything is going wonderfully and people are going to keep giving them money. So it's like, so some of this rating stuff I mean, in in the piece, I also talked about how ratings, ratings are not just a piece of data about something that happened, right? They actually are something that changes what happens, specifically, usually by making the media cover it, by making people more interested in following it. So that goes, that holds for Netflix. Like that, that's, that sort of idea is true about everything that Netflix says about Netflix. What Netflix says about itself is not just like an accurate representation of something that has happened. It is like part of it. Being like, we are the ultimate culture. We are the we are the TV of the future and everyone needs to get on board and you should all just like cut your cords and like we have it all. So so when they say stuff like we have 40 million people watching a show that Lifetime couldn't get 600,000 people to watch, it's it's like it's not just an it's not just neutral because the numbers are inflated. It's also saying like what time's up terrestrial television like. This is the future. We're it's like it's like it's like a very Silicon Valley idea of like we have disrupted everything. And like we're the we're, we are the future. This like you should give us all your money. So uh, when I think that there is a lot of mythologizing about all of these tech companies and Netflix in particular or just as another one of these examples. And so um what I hate about the ratings, even though I also did it, is it's like 80 million people watched Bird Box. You're like, wow, I guess it, movies should just give up. You know, like there's a little bit about there's a little bit of that to all of these numbers. And I hate that about Netflix. Like, And I think that ratings are complicated, right? Ratings don't always reflect if something is good. Ratings don't aren't necessarily the most meaningful piece of information about anything, but they are. And, and ratings, uh, there's lots of weird ways that ratings are reported, like Nielsen ratings. But they are an actual piece of data that is not provided by this untrustworthy entity to us about how it's actually doing. And so in a- the absence of any of that information, I think it's just like it's just you are only inhaling its own hype. Right. Well, there's two factors here. One is not wanting to feel like you are a purveyor of Netflix's mythologizing about its own power and clout and strength. Um, and on the other hand, the like readily available evidence and sense that Netflix does have significantly growing power and clout and strength and that we are desperate for ways to understand that. So when they dole out little tidbits of information, we lap them up excitedly. Um, you know, we did a piece a couple weeks ago about this question of what does it mean that they're starting to release selective ratings information and might they come to release more or not or why? And the dynamics behind it are really interesting. They're they're not ad supported, so they don't need to have a reliable external audit of their metrics 
you know, for advertisers to know that they're getting what they are paying for in terms of reaching audiences. Um, and then, and the other factor here is that the payment structures are different because the types of residuals or other benefits that uh, the contributors and creators might get f- based on data about how widely their stuff was watched or syndicated or anything else, you know, all of that is inscrutable to the agents representing those folks, but none of the unions and nobody else in town has put up a very big fight because Netflix is giving everybody so much work that even if the pay is a little different or they get bonuses for hitting audience targets, but there's no independent review of what the audience is or what those bonuses might be, like nobody's complaining because there's just so much work to make these shows that the idea of fighting against it is really hard. So the notion that this landscape is going to change anytime soon seems unlikely. You know, so there's the general sense of how big is Netflix and how can we understand it when they won't share any data, which is an ongoing problem. And there's the secondary question, which your piece also touches on, which is what does it do to those of us who like to write about and think about culture for a living to not understand and not really have visibility into what everybody's watching and why? Because part of analyzing any work is analyzing the work itself and part of it is analyzing its reception and what it seems to mean to the people who've found it and care about it and talk about it part of what we like to analyze is response and this you know the quality of that response and also the scale of that response and so there's this way in which the silence around Netflix numbers is this big kind of dampening effect on our ability to see and measure what people care about. So the thing that I'm really interested about the numbers is like, are we in a tree falling in a forest situation? Which is just to say, like, um, if uh, there's a show that's a massive hit on Netflix and we don't know it's a massive hit, does that like mean in some fundamental way it's not a massive hit in the way that we used to understand that, right? Because we can't, like, the culture can't be mobilized around whatever it looks like when something is a massive hit. Um, And like this is really changing idea of what it means for something to be a mass cultural phenomenon if we don't know that it's happening. Um, And I think I mean, so there's there's really like really knock on ramifications for people who write about that um, for journalists who cover that stuff. But like one of the things about the YouTube phenomenon or you or um, sex education or any of these shows is like the question is, you know, always there have been shows that when you write about them on the internet, they do better than other shows. And they don't actually directly correlate necessarily to the size of that audience. Like a show like Breaking Bad or Mad Men, they never had a huge audience, but they were very popular on the internet. Game of Thrones is sort of like both things at once. But you could really imagine that you could write about YouTube stuff all the time. And the people that actually are watching YouTube are actually just not reading, you know, media like are not reading old school media sites that would cover it like it just it just and this is so this is then this and this is related to the question about Netflix which is like what does this mass culture look like if we don't like if we don't know the demographics of these of these numbers like we just literally don't know the nature of the phenomena and that's a really different thing like you know there have been um it's like if we did know the nature of the phenomena, let's say we had the numbers and we were like it turns out 15 million people have watched you and they watched all of it in a week and 75% of those are women between the ages of 11 and 25. So then what happens, right? Then is that phenomena like we are like, oh, we understand how to think about that and we don't have to think about that. Now suddenly this is something like girls are into. Now this is like 
one direction or something? Or do we actually have to change what we're thinking because nothing gets 15 million people anymore? So we actually have to take that more seriously. So there's there's ways that the absence of information actually um, might make us be sort of more open minded about what constitutes a phenomenon. And then there's ways that it just it's just really confusing. (laughs) And just like we don't know what it means. We're just in the in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny the way that advertising uh, old school TV commercials were in, were a pretty pretty good indicator of the character of the thing you were watching and the character of the audience that it was trying to appeal to. And if you see a Volvo or a Mercedes ad or a paper towel ad or a Cialis ad, um, you know these things are all all they're they're studied, right? I mean, it's it's there's there's essentially hard data going into everyone's decision to pay good money to put them on there. And um, that's just completely gone blind uh, in the age of streaming. It's true. It's, it, um, Will, I picked up um, in your piece some sense that this is a, a feedback loop and that the content itself is going to bend to some of these numbers. Um, how has that started uh, becoming evident in the in the content that you're watching? I mean, Netflix is making such a huge volume of stuff right now. It's hard to say like, oh, they're only making things for teens or something like that. I think they are making a huge amount of content that appeals to younger people. Um, and I I suspect that, I mean, it's it, as Julie was saying, it's sort of like until there's some kind of contraction, it's hard to say like, what is the, sh- the chaff? Like what's the stuff they don't need? Um, and while they're growing, they don't really have to like be particularly open about what that is it's kind of can be hard to deduce I mean there's still just a huge amount but I mean I expect that you'll see like I think we're going to keep seeing like just lots and lots of stuff about teenagers yeah and this you know this happened with HBO HBO was a subscription service and and not ad supported and didn't release any numbers for years and years and years and years and then it had a few big hits I think it was with Sex and the City or Sopranos that it first started releasing like holy moly like this many people watch this episode like you know FYI we're we're in the big leagues now and eventually they move towards releasing ratings for everything they do even though they don't have the ad supported reason to do so in part because one thing that happens when you start releasing numbers for your hits is that everyone begins to wonder what everything else is getting right like you're sort of if you start to selectively tout the hits then um it perhaps suggests something less than great about your other stuff now obviously at a more boutique environment like hbo where they're only doing a handful of things you can sort of point to the discrete number of stuff for which ratings have not been released and begin to wonder about it in a way that perhaps exerts pressure to then release consistent ratings in a way that at netflix it's like yeah We've told you about four shows. We haven't told you about 10 gajillion shows. So, you know, fine. We're still on the fair side of the tipping point there. But, uh, you know, you're right, Willa. I mean, there there will be increasing pressure over time. All right. Well, uh, Willa is the uh, TV critic for Slate. Willa, it's always a total pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? My endorsement this week is essentially a whole person in their entire career. So uh, I I guess I should break it down in a way that is a little more approachable than that. But I'm endorsing Michel Legrand, the great uh, French film composer, or just composer in general, but who was most famous for his his film scores, uh, who died this past weekend. And on Saturday morning when I woke up to read his obituary, I just started creating a playlist and going down Michel Legrand Lane. And it was so wonderful that I want to invite 
people to come down it with me. Steve, are you familiar with Michelle Legrand? Only because of uh, Terry Gross and f- uh, Fresh Air last night, but uh, immediately began playing some of those old records. Oh. oh, you mean she played an old interview with him or about yeah. him? Yep. A uh, wonderful interview with him. He is I could have listened to him say the word Cherbourg, which I can't do. I mean, can't do justice to the way a Frenchman says Cherbourg. I, I can't do it, but it's like, that's why it's so fetching. But everything else he said was amazing. It's a bewitching interview. Oh, that's and great. I, I, I can is, add that is, to is my... Right, is magnificent. Incredible, right? So I guess a few things to recommend. Well, one of them you just mentioned, he's probably most famous as the composer of The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, which is a Jacques Demy film, a completely sung through musical with Catherine Deneuve that, you know, is, is kind of a Legend. It's it's this gloriously colored technicolor, uh, extremely romantic, extremely tragic. Um, I don't know what to call it, like a little operetta. And it's just so perfect. It's one of those albums that once you put it on, you have to listen to the entire thing beginning to end. It tells the story, of course, in song. And the follow up movie to The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is called in French, Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, I guess the young girls of Rochefort, which stars Catherine Deneuve and her sister, Francoise Dorliac, is also fantastic. Um, but if you want to go smaller and just have a, you know, a little three minute um, Michel Legrand experience, I wanted to endorse the song The Windmills of Your Mind which I could not get out of my head all weekend. It's so beautiful. It's it's a song he wrote for a Steve McQueen movie, an American movie called The Thomas Crown Affair. That's sort of this high style, very silly um, romantic spy drama that has this just haunting, gorgeous song. Uh, the lyrics are by Marilyn and Alan Bergman, the duo who wrote The Way We Were. And, uh, and the music, which is this sort of cyclical melody that repeats itself and repeats itself and kind of with slight variants um, will get stuck in your head forever. The lyrics are also beautiful. You could listen to the original version for the movie, which is sung by Noel Harrison and has this great kind of 60s arrangement. But I also wanted to endorse... There's so many great covers of this song, including Dusty Springfield sings it on her greatest, I think, album, Dusty in Memphis, with this kind of bossa nova arrangement. Maybe we can go out on that song, Windmills of Your Mind, if our producer is kind. Um, But anything about Michel Legrand, read his obituary in Le Monde. If you read French, it's a beautiful obituary with some great songs connected. If you want to read his obituary in English because you don't read French, there's one on the Criterion blog by David Hudson that's great. We'll put links to all these things on the show page. But just I encourage all listeners, if you don't know Michel, Legrand to just explore him in your own way because he was incredible. Uh, wonderful. Um, Julia, what do you have? Does it make me a jerk if I endorse something I saw at Sundance? I think it might, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's pertinent to what we discussed this week. <laughs> oh, festival <laughs> tweets. <laughs> the dreaded festival tweets. I know, I know. I've gone through the looking glass and I'll never come back. So I just got back from the Sundance Film Festival where I saw a bunch of movies and talked to a bunch of people about movies. And one of the movies I saw there, I think, really underscored my response to Vice and May. Uh, explain some of the vehemence of my response to Vice. It's a film called The Report by Scott Burns, directed it. Um, It stars Adam Driver as a young Senate Intelligence Committee investigator and Annette Bening as Dianne Feinstein and describes the preparation of the report released in 2014 that uh, details how exactly it is that the American intelligence community came to torture people during the early aughts and mid-aughts. And I'm not certain that it is a thrilling work of cinema. It's very much in the spotlight camp of let's put a lot of people in drab clothes in drab windowless rooms and have them shuffle a lot of documents around and try to create historical procedural drama out of it. Um, I'm not sure it does it quite as effectively as Spotlight, but... 
after I saw the kind of glib and incurious approach to history that Vice demonstrated, it, it made me more excited both about what I had seen in the report and about the conversation that might result from the report's release, presumably later this year. Um, it's, it, I mean, we are, we should talk at some point more broadly about the recent trend of kind of recent history reenactment news education cinema, because there's been a lot of it, actually. And I'm not sure that's a longstanding trend in in Hollywood, and it'd be interesting to look at some of those examples and think about why they all exist. But um, the precision and methodical nature of this exploration of what America did and why it did it and how effective it was not, um, particularly in contrast to the ways in which some of those questions were portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty, it was very effective. So I'm excited for you guys to see it and to talk about you when it comes out. And um, those of you disappointed by Vice, rest assured that there is something coming down the pike that addresses these questions in a more thoughtful manner. Indeed. Um, all right. So I'm going to endorse um, something that I'm almost positive one or both of you has uh, um, endorsed already. Uh, the novel Conversation with Friends by um, Sally Rooney. Have you guys no. read it? No. Ooh. Well, you know, Lorna Collins did this great profile of Rooney in The New Yorker, which signaled to me that this thing had gone pretty wide amongst at least a certain readership. But it's, you know, Sally Rooney's an incredibly young, incredibly precocious Irish novelist. She's still in her 20s. She wrote this book, her first novel, when she was probably in her early to mid-20s. Um, and it tells, in some ways, a pretty straightforward plot-wise story about um, uh, a couple of young college women who, college-age women who get involved with a slightly older, like 30-something um, semi-successful worldly couple and how their lives kind of cross the circuitries of their lives become entangled with one another. Um, but And it, she, it's, she writes it in this kind of slightly disembodied zombie-esque prose that at first bugged me because I thought it was just merely trendy or something that a young writer does in lieu of developing a real voice. But actually, it, it's to great effect ultimately. And the gift that she absolutely has that you pick up on immediately is her ability to chart the nuances of a conversation between people and how these these banal things that are happening on the surface of a conversation actually hide these very subtle shifts in feeling and um, power dynamics. And I think one of the reasons, I don't know if Collins got into this in her profile, I don't, don't remember, I hope I'm not plagiarizing it from her, but why, surely this is one legacy of... Um, of texting and young people growing up with texting because of course you can go back and look at a conversation and see how it's you know weather shifts in these unexpected ways even though maybe people are punting back and forth relatively um you know banal words to one another um and in fact she does convey conversations that many conversations that happen face to face but also several that happen um uh, over text and um it just is it it, it it's 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 just kind of a brilliantly done novel i mean she's got a very simple straightforward style um that's meant to show you what people especially young people are no longer able to say to one another or themselves and she's working within that limitation both as someone who's grown up with that kind of absence of a vocabulary of human inwardness that someone of my generation finds normal to have um but also you know um 
she's also holding it up for examination. Um, and furthermore, it's also about the broken social contract that 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 um, not only the United States and not only England, but also Ireland, sort of all of the first world, the broken social contract, older people, especially boomers, uh, have made with younger people who see no path to adulthood. And so there's sort of a lack of language to describe human inwardness and a lack of the outward social forms that once made careers and marriages seem natural. And it's left young people stranded. And this to me is the best, most sensitive um, index of that phenomenon that I've read thus far. It's, it's, there were moments when I wanted to throw the book across the room. Um, that can be a really good sign because I kept picking it up. I kept going back with it and stuck with it through to the end. And, and in the end, I think it's a remarkable, a remarkable book. And I will say, I would love, love, love to hear what each of you thinks of it. Um, so I hope you guys um, uh, pursue it. But anyway, so Sally Rooney, Conversations with Friends, the Lauren Collins profile is of her is terrific. Also, um, unsurprisingly, she's a great um, journalist. All right. Um, thanks, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Vice. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I, but I'm so fucking bad. I'm so fucking bad at an argument between me and Julia Turner getting cut off just as it gets going. Oh, my God. I have so much left in the fucking tank. <laughs> <laughs> He's but, just behind the door cackling, cackling <laughs> emptily. <laughs> I, all I have is passive aggression. That's the one that's the one. <laughs> quiver i could actually use <laughs> arrow in my quiver i can actually use right now anyway julia turner uh thank you steve thank a you. pleasure as always you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culture fest email us please at culturefest at slate.com we will interact with you greedily happily on twitter we have a feed it's at slate cult fest our producer is benjamin frisch our production assistant is alex barish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Like a tunnel that you follow To a tunnel of its own Down a hollow to a cavern Where the sun has never shone Like a door that keeps revolving In a hay